Welcome to Planet Geo, the podcast where we talk about our amazing planet, how it works, and why it matters to you. Oh, I think Google is slow, but I also think you might be the world's slowest typer I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) What is this strange thing with buttons and letters on it? What is this thing in front of me? How does you one use it? Moron. I really got to do this with somebody else. I'm sick of you. <laughs> all right, Chris. Hold on. I All right. I am doing great. How you doing, Jesse? I'm doing well. What did you do? Just put down a beer? Or what, what do you got? What do you no, got? That? It's coffee. It's coffee. Oh, all right. All right. All right. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Hey, this was a great interview. It really was. We just had the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Gabriella Farfan, who is the Coraline Whitney Curator of Gems and Minerals at the Smithsonian National Museum in Washington, D.C. And she's an expert at minerals, for sure. And, and she <laughs> yeah. has, I mean, she got her bachelor's degree from Stanford University. She got a Ph.D. from MIT in the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. I mean, top flight. No kidding. Mineralogist here, right? And she (laughs) has some really interesting things to talk about, about mineralogy, and and really drove home the importance of mineralogy for the geosciences to me in a way I hadn't really appreciated before. Right. I agree. You know, because that was one of the things that when we were getting ready for this interview, we were talking about just how the field of mineralogy is struggling in college departments. And many programs are dropping it. Yeah, that's right. It's one of these sort of old fields that was very important yeah. and, and maybe is less important now. And she has but an incredible answer to, you know, why that's short-sighted. Yeah, that's right. And we got into a lot of discussions about what she, what a curator at the Smithsonian does, you know, the beauty of the, the national collection of minerals and gems. I mean, totally cool stuff. Anyway, here is our interview with Dr. Gabriella Farfen, a curator at the Smithsonian Institute. Enjoy. Dr. Farfan, thank you for joining us on Planet Geo, and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Chris. Hi. Nice to meet you. We are excited. This is uh, yes. this is fun. You have like one of the coolest jobs in geoscience, I think, coming from a nerd who likes rocks and minerals <laughs> and stuff. You are a curator of mineralogy at the Smithsonian Museum, which is sort of the national museum in the United States, right? We have a friend who's a curator in the, of rocks, basically, and he described his job to me once as he was in charge of our nation's rock collection, which I was like, it blew my mind. I was like, that's the most amazing job description that you could possibly have. Like, how cool. Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, this is, this is something that like Chris and I, I think kind of have an idea because we, we, we live in this space, but for the average person, I don't think people know like what a curator does, especially at the Smithsonian Museum, which is in Washington, DC. Like, what do you do? Yeah. So I agree. This is, for me, this is the coolest job in the whole wide world. Is it a dream job? Like, first of all, is it? It is my dream job. Okay, cool. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've been wanting to have this job since I was 16 years old. So I am so honored that I'm now at the Smithsonian. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so, so I'm what we call a research curator. So it's a little different from other curatorial positions at other museums in that at the Smithsonian, we do both research and curation work. So approximately half of my job involves doing scientific research, specifically on minerals. And the other half is to actually curate the National Gem and Mineral Collection. 
So in terms of the research, it's very similar to what a professor would do, where you have a research program and you also train students and postdocs. And my research, I study biominerals and their crystal structures and chemistry. So biominerals, this is just like, what's the bio part here? Like these the are- bio part are any uh, organisms that make minerals. So it could be bacteria or even us human beings. We're biomineralizing organisms. So covers a whole gambit. Um, and then on the curation side, I actually work with a team of other curators and collection managers, and we make sure that all of the specimens in the collection are properly cataloged and stored so that they'll be available for many, many generations to come. Okay. Uh, Gabriella, how did you get into geoscience? Um, I have a kind of an aha moment that I had. Um, what's your background? What Did you have that kind of moment when you knew, yes, this is the direction I'm going to go? Yeah. Yeah, I actually did. Um, oh, I love these stories. It's exciting when people have these stories. I think a lot of us geologists have had have had that moment. So um, I had actually been interested in geology since I was a very small kid. So I actually grew up with two biologists as parents. So it was very difficult. <laughs> Gabrielle, you are among company. My, my father yeah. and Chris's father are both high school biology teachers. So you're yeah. in good hands yeah. here growing up yeah. with biology, <laughs> you know, as the yeah. evil science of That's our right. parents. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you understand why I somehow got back into biomineralogy. Right. Of course, there I had go. to, right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was very hard to escape science in our household. I was very lucky. My parents are very, very supportive. But my aha moment happened when I was about six years old and my family had moved to Madison, Wisconsin. And my dad worked in the zoology department at the University of Wisconsin. And down the street was this small natural history museum. It was the UW Geology Museum. So during lunch, my dad would take me down there at times. And of course, I immediately gravitated towards the mineral display. And so one day I was there looking at the crystals. And like any six-year-old, I was just really excited about the colors and the shapes of the crystals. And around the corner, this old man walks towards me. And it turns out that it's the director of the museum. He's this older German gentleman. His name is Dr. Klaus Westfall. And he came up and asked me whether I liked minerals. And at the time, I was a very shy kid. So I don't know if I just nodded at him or if I maybe responded and said, yeah. But he could just tell that I was so excited about minerals. And he gave me my first quartz crystal. And so that really set everything in motion for me where I realized I could start my own collection. And so I started visiting our local Bernie's Rock Shop. I would go there almost every weekend. And we also, my dad and I joined the Madison Gem and Mineral Club. And everyone there was just so supportive and so enthusiastic. And so I, it really became my family. And, you know, it's really easy to get excited about a topic, but it's much harder to continue that enthusiasm unless you're surrounded by other people who are equally as enthusiastic and supportive. So I've been very lucky that growing up in that environment, I had so many people that encouraged me to pursue mineralogy and eventually it became my career. That's incredible. You have really been preparing for the Smithsonian job your whole <laughs> life. I mean, do you, so do you still have the little quartz crystal? Like it was it little like pyramid, you know, kind of 
clear quartz crystal with the you know that well, I forget what the pyramid uh, what it's what's it called? Why am I blanking on this? What's really, the Jesse? Form? With the pyramid, with like at the top on it. What's it called? It's not that difficult. It's like a termination, like a nice little termination. <laughs> termination. That's what I'm looking for. Yes. Thank you. Oh. Okay. There we go. Yeah. I don't actually know if I could pinpoint the exact crystal at this point. That but. is super cool. <laughs> Gabriella, did you ever go in terms of like maintaining that enthusiasm? Did you go through a phase in your life, like middle school or early high school when it became uncool when it stepped away a little bit or not? No, I was a huge nerd. So I just <laughs> kept going with it. Um, it actually right. got more and more intense as I got older. So we started taking family vacations to mineral mines around the country so it just got more and more involved. Oh, okay. I just knew you, you're among kindred spirits here. And Chris, hold on. It, it never became uncool because it wasn't cool. I mean, you know this from a long history of being uncool. Like being a geologist <laughs> is not cool. Okay. You, you know that really well. well. But now it's cool. It is. Uh, yeah. I, no, I don't actually know that, Jesse. I'm the coolest guy I know. Oh, so. Yeah, we rock. Right. Yeah, there That's we right. go. There we go. That's right. Got to get a good pun in here. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's like, you know, half your job is the minerals and stuff. What the other half is this research. So I want to, I'm curious about, you know, the biomineralization, like what you're doing in detail. Um, but can you give us like the high level elevator pitch for why we should care? I'm not a mineralogist. I don't really understand a lot of it, to be honest. So like, what <laughs> you give us the elevator pitch. Why, why should, why is your research interesting and important? So I usually, I like to start with stepping back and away from my research and just start with you know, minerals. So I would argue that minerals are some of the most important things that we can be studying. They're literally the building blocks that make up every single rock, right? Rocks are made of minerals. And so they are the foundation of geology. And they happen to also be the foundation for a lot of material science and other fields in science. And so we know that by the definition of a mineral, minerals are solids with defined crystal structures and defined chemical compositions. So in mineralogy, that's what we do. We study the crystallography and chemistry of minerals. And there are many, many subfields in mineralogy. So we ask questions that range from the very, what is the very core of our earth to the mineralogy of the outer reaches of our solar system. And for me, I was interested in studying something that had direct relevance to our biosphere and to our day-to-day -day lives as people. And so I quickly gravitated towards biomineralogy. And these are minerals that formed, are formed by living organisms. So like I said earlier, it can be bacteria or it can be human beings, a cow, uh, <laughs> corals. And so, I, I mean, I really love to tell people that, you know, you are a biomineralizing organism. <laughs> Your skeleton is made up of the mineral bioappetite. And without it, we would just be blobs of jelly. So you can thank minerals for, you know, your health and okay. happiness. Can you explain that a little bit further? Because I really think that's that's a really interesting thing. You said yeah. bioappetite? Bioappetite, yeah. So it's the mineral. I mean, if you were to take a bone and grind it up and put it on an x-ray diffractometer and look at the crystal structure of bone, the mineral is appetite. And it's bioappetite because it's formed by an organism. So there's there are slight nuances in a lot of biominerals where they're not exactly like their geological counterparts, but for all intensive purposes, they're about the same thing. 
Really? I did mm-hmm. not. Jesse, did you know that? No. And in fact, I'm thinking back to, you know, I'm just teaching this intro to geoscience class. And I think I just thought the mineral section and said that, you know, part of the definition of mineral is that they're abiotic. That it, yeah. And so now you're making me, you know, second guess <laughs> the definition of a mineral actually. And this is, yeah. so this is why you say they're bio minerals is because our, our mm-hmm. sort of geologist traditional definition would say that they can't be produced by life. Right. So yeah, that's a really good point. Do you have to qualify it with bio? I would say so. I mean, so that is still part of the definition has to be inorganic. Um, But we've been revisiting that as a mineralogy community. Yeah, that's really cool. So what what's the most like interesting thing you're studying right now? Like, can you give us a little bit of I'm not sure I'll understand it, but can you try and get us to understand like what's a cool project? Like, what are you working on? I don't know, tomorrow or something that you're excited about? My day to day research focuses mostly on marine and aquatic organisms. So I do research on corals and mollusks at the moment. And I look at how they build their skeletons and shells. And they use minerals such as aragonite and calcite, which are both calcium carbonates. So very, very common minerals on the surface of our planet. And I'm interested in how they they make their skeletons and shells. But my overall guiding research question is how do the environments that these organisms grow in actually impact the mineralogy of their skeletons and shells? And what does this mean for the material properties of these uh, creations and the health of these organisms ultimately? So for instance, if you're undergoing rapid climate change or changes in salinity, how is this going to actually impact the shells and skeletons? on an atomic scale. Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay. What have you found in terms of their ability to adapt to climate change and ocean acidification, things like this? This is a really interesting topic, mostly because it's very understudied so far. So I went out, I set out to to answer these questions and it turns out there's a lot of background work we have to do first. So I've actually done some work looking at corals um, growing under different environments And so hopefully that paper will come out soon, but we just, even the basic questions of, well, what happens when you put in, you know, this element for calcium, how does that change the structure? Um, Those are still open-ended questions. There are a lot of questions that have to be answered before we can get to the fun stuff. But the basic answer is that I do think that you're going to be seeing changes um, with ocean acidification, especially on an atomic scale. So I did do a project looking at deep sea corals, which are corals that live below the photic zone. So they're, you know, 50 meters deep into the ocean. And it just so happens that a lot of these corals are growing very close to the acid horizon, which is where the aragonite saturation state of the mineral that makes their skeletons is below one. So by definition, they should start dissolving if they are growing below that zone in the ocean. And so we actually did see um, that the mineralogy of these skeletons was changing as you got closer and closer to this horizon and sometimes even going slightly below the horizon. So these organisms are living like right on the razor's edge of ability to make their shell. Is that, that kind of what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Like the, you, change the, you change the chemistry a little bit and they can't actually build their shells anymore? In theory, yes, but because they are organisms, they're also controlling things internally. So that's what makes biomineralogy so complicated and so exciting for me is that there is that biological component 
where we still don't know how much control these organisms have over the making of their skeletons. Like how much of it is inorganic chemistry? How much of it is it uh, catalysts in the form of organic molecules? You know, are they pumping out ions in this place and pumping in other ions to, you know, create a saturation state that's higher compared to the surrounding waters? So there are a lot of open-ended questions. All right, Gabrielle, I, I th- man, it's super cool, but you're just giving my family, you're just giving them ammunition <laughs> in our debate about what's cooler, biology or geology. Cause that's, that's, that's a cool, that's a cool that thing. That's that- really amazing. So you're finding basically that they can adapt there or they are adapting right now to the changing ocean conditions. Uh, some people would say yes. And some people would say no, still okay. a very All hot right. topic. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Interesting. Fair enough. Cool. Fair enough. Gabriella. So these marine organisms is calcite more common for their shells or is aragonite more common? It depends on the organism. So right now we are living in what we would call an aragonitic sea. And so if you look over geologic history, the ocean has changed in terms of its chemistry to swap back and forth between calcitic seas and aragonitic seas. And the difference is the actual concentration of magnesium in the seawater. Now, we don't know exactly why this is the case, but if you have uh, ratios that are higher than a certain threshold, you get aragonite. And if magnesium concentrations fall you'll get calcite. And so currently we're living in an aragonitic environment. And so corals, stony corals, so scleractinian corals, predominantly produce aragonitic Hmm. skeletons. Hmm. But there are also organisms that are still using calcite. And it's likely that a lot of these organisms um, evolved during times and periods of geologic history when calcitic seas were prominent. That's amazing. There's a lot of work being done on a paleo from a paleontological perspective as well to answer that question. Can you outline the difference between aragonite and calcite? Yes. So they are both the same, have the same chemistry, but they have different crystal structures. Okay. So basically the atoms stack together differently in calcite and aragonite. Yeah, they're they're pretty similar if you look at the unit cell structure. So the unit cell is the smallest possible tessellation for a crystal. Um, so they all have carbonate groups, which are essentially triangles of carbon and oxygen surrounded by larger calcium atoms. It's just how they're arranged can be can change a little bit between the two. Sure. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. Jesse, did you know that that most marine organisms use or are made of aragonite? No, I didn't. What you trying to call me out for being an idiot? Well, I mean, who know? I no, I didn't know that. <laughs> and and Jesse, do you know what tessellation is? She used um, a big word there. I do know what tessellation is. Yeah, do you know <laughs> okay. what it is? Are you asking? Or are you testing me? <laughs> Tested you. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's move on. This unit cell discussion kind of brings up a question. I think when I took mineralogy, and for sure when Chris took mineralogy, you know, in the 1940s, you know, he probably learned about the unit cell. You learned this very sort of what I would say traditional view of mineralogy where you learn about the unit cell and the orthorhombic or triclinic or whatever. Uh, That is not kind of the way we teach things anymore. Like mineralogy as a sort of foundational class in uh, a college, you know, geology program or geoscience program is not that common anymore, really. It's yeah. going away. 
is that, I don't know, how do you feel about that change in your field sort of being at least becoming or being perceived as becoming less foundational to geoscience? Do you have any thoughts on on that? That was a really rambling question, by the way. That was really rambling. If you need me to clarify or rephrase it, I'm happy to <laughs> wow. try and try and distill that down. Gabriella, a lot of departments are dropping mineralogy as a standalone course. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's true that there are relatively few mineralogists still uh, working today in the U.S., especially compared to Europe. And that makes it difficult to teach mineralogy courses across all of the universities in the U.S. But I think that universities that drop mineralogy altogether are really missing out in the long run. You know, I've seen cases where students who went to really great schools for undergrad that happened to not teach mineralogy had to go back and relearn mineralogy at their new institutions um, as Ph.D. students <laughs> because their PhD advisors were like, you need to understand this in order to understand the basic principles behind petrology. And so I think that, you know, some of these students will really get behind when it comes down to the nitty gritty of their research. And so I think that it's a little short-sighted to get rid of mineralogy altogether. What I do think, uh, I do think that we are in the need of some rebranding as mineralogists. Right. Because I do agree that a lot of people see it as an archaic field. Right. You think of Jules Verne, you know, na naming the, the lead character in Journey to the Center of the Earth. Like that was a, he was a mineralogist. <laughs> right. So it was very popular back in the day. Um, but currently there aren't very many people that proudly call themselves mineralogists like I do. So a lot of people think that mineralogy is not relevant to modern day topics. But this is simply not true. I think that you really have to understand how crystals grow, how their structures impact their material properties, how organisms build their skeletons. All of these are mineralogical questions that have direct implications on environmental science, on future technologies, and even medicine. And so call it what you like, but a lot of scientists are doing mineralogical research. Uh, we're just not claiming it as our own. <laughs> so that's an interesting perspective. I mean, so yeah, because I agree, you know, mineralogy is like, it's like totally foundational to geoscience in general, and it, and it has been for a long time. So what's the new brand? I mean, what, I mean, is biomineralogy the future? Is, you know, sort of material science the future? Like, like, what is the, is there a, like a, a term that is kind of overarching or, or something like, how do you group together all these people who are kind of doing different parts of mineralogy, but don't want to call themselves mineralogists, maybe? Well, that will be a challenge, I think, for the next few years. But I mean, I've been very vocal about being a mineralogist. And a lot of times, it's just that people haven't heard of that term anymore. So I've actually collaborated with a lot of biologists. And every time I start talking to them about my research and how I work on biominerals and how I'm a mineralogist at heart, and that I can help them solve questions from a unique perspective, they're very responsive and they, they really love that. And so I've actually built a lot of collaborations with people from different fields that, you know, your typical geologists would never interact with. Mm -hmm. So no, that's, that's cool. That's an interesting perspective. I like that. Gabriella, you said something that I found really interesting. You, you, do you think the problem with mineralogy in at the collegiate level is not having people to teach it? I guess, I see programs just getting changed instead of mineralogy as a standalone course, they have rocks and minerals instead. 
Mm-hmm. And when, when Jesse and I went through, and probably you as well, you know, mineralogy was kind of like a weeder course. It was the, your first really difficult geology class that you took. And, and there, there was some pride that went along with making it through that, you know. Um, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, yeah. When I took mineralogy, it was actually, it was a combined course. It was earth materials. And so it was half mineralogy and half anthropology. And so I think it doesn't really matter you know, what course it is, as long as people are learning it and getting the perspective that mineralogical research can be really relevant. I think that's what's really missing is that people aren't really seeing the relevance. They're not seeing the biomineralogy. They're not seeing how it applies to environmental science. They're not seeing how it applies to medicine and other fields. And so I think that as educators, people can do a, a really great job in the future of highlighting some of the really great work that is thanks to mineralogy. No, you're right. Um, I never thought about it that way either, but you're solving or you're working on solving a really important question in terms of how adaptations take place in the changing oceans. And that's really important. And Yeah. And you can think of mineralogy as a tool, really. All right. So I want to go back to the Smithsonian. Uh, you have this beautiful you know, picture in your Zoom background right now of, of the <laughs> mineralogy. In your opinion, what is the premier gem i want to focus on the gemstones because there's like this historical aspect to gemstones that's totally cool like what's the premier one in the collection for you and maybe for the public like maybe those are two different questions or two different answers but (laughs) well i think the obvious answer to this question is the hope diamond right this is one of the most famous objects in human culture you know it's up there with the mona lisa like everyone has at least heard of the hope diamond they might not know what it is, but they've probably heard of it. So what's the background? Give us the short background of the Hope Diamond. I mean, you, you probably get to see this every day at work or something. I mean, this <laughs> incredibly valuable piece of human history. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, so if you think about it, you know, a lot of people have diamond engagement rings and everyone makes a really big deal out of it, right? Because it's a very special thing to have a gemstone in your home, first of all. So imagine a diamond that is almost 50 times the size of your average one carat diamond engagement ring. So this is actually, it's 45.52 carats. So it is a very large diamond for starters, but what makes the Hope Diamond extra special is that it is a deep blue color. So a lot of people don't realize that diamonds don't have to be colorless. They can have different colors. And these colors are due to impurities. In the case of the Hope Diamond, it's due to boron, uh, which causes the blue color. And blue diamonds are some of the most rare uh, diamonds out there. So it's very, very difficult to find them. And when they do find them, they usually make the news, right? So they're very, very rare. And so this one in particular is very famous because it has a very colorful history in addition to its deep blue color. So uh, it's very old. You can actually trace it throughout human history. It was discovered in India, but we know that it's traveled its way to France, to London, in the UK, all the way to the US. And not only that, but it was owned by many famous people. And some people even say that it's cursed. And even though we know it's not cursed, 
Um, it makes for a great story. And what better way to sell an expensive diamond than to attach a great story to it? Yeah. So if you want to know the actual story, I highly, highly recommend um, looking at the Natural History Museum's website. There's unfortunately a lot of misinformation about the Hope Diamond on the internet. So don't believe anything you read unless you read it from our website. Or uh, my colleague Jeff Post recently uh, published a book on our National Gem and Mineral Collection. And he did a really great job of giving the most up-to-date account of the Hope Diamond. Oh, that's cool. Very All right. Cool. So what, so hold on. Can you tell us how you acquired it? How the Smithsonian acquired? Oh yeah. So the, the Hope Diamond was donated to the Smithsonian in 1958 by Harry Winston. It's currently set in a Cartier setting and it was actually delivered to the Smithsonian by mail. So Harry oh, wow. Winston literally put <laughs> the diamond in a registered mail envelope <laughs> and mailed it through the U.S. Postal Service. Wow. And the actual envelope is in the National Collection with the U.S. Postal Museum right wow. now. Wow, that's Amazing. pretty impressive. All right, so the Hope Diamond's <laughs> the obvious answer. What, what's the non-obvious one for like the best gem in the collection, in your opinion? Yeah. Oh, man, I don't know if I can answer that. I think they're all just so, so special. I, I prefer to just like give a tour. Like I love pointing out all of my favorites. Um, I don't have a, a favorite mineral per se because I just I'm a fan of all of them. Um, but right now, I would say that if I were to take you to see the gem collection, we would walk into the Winston Gallery where the Hope Diamond is in the center of the room. It rotates on a base so that everyone that crowds around it gets a chance to see it. But currently, there is a neighbor to the Hope Diamond. If you look to the right, you'll see a smaller case that has a bright red gemstone. And this is the Whitney Flame. It's a topaz that is bright red and was found in Brazil. And it's a, a rather recent acquisition um, donated by Coral and Whitney. And I would say that is something you should definitely take a look at. Um, and so then we would continue into the mineral or the gem gallery and you'll look to the left and there is a very tall, gorgeous aquamarine that's cut in a unique way. It looks like an obelisk and the back has all of these etched facets. And so that is the Dom Pedro aquamarine. And that is also one of my favorites. Um, it was carved by someone from Eder Oberstein, by Bernd Munsteiner from Eder Oberstein. And I, I just find it very charming. They have this, this tiny village. It was actually two villages, Eder and Oberstein in Germany, and they melded into one. And it's one of the premier places for gem carvers in the world. So there are gem carvers that have been working in this industry for like 500 years. So generations and generations of gem carvers. So this is one of the families that made this, and now it's in our national collection. Um, if you keep going, you'll see Marie Antoinette's diamond earrings. Wow. Um, there's the Carmen Lucia ruby, which is just a phenomenally bright red ruby ring. Um, I really like the Blue Heart Diamond. So the Smithsonian is probably the only museum that has not one, but two big blue diamonds. So the Blue Heart Diamond 
it almost feels like you're wearing a ring pot. You know, it's this big, big diamond. <laughs> yeah. um, I got to wear it once and that was really exciting. Whoa, wow. you did? That's, yeah. that's, oh, that's cool. cool. <laughs> so. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's a beautiful uh, virtual tour through the Gem Museum. That's amazing. Yeah. Gabriella, um, how do you, so you talked before about the studying the crystal structure. What equipment do you use to study the crystallography of these gems? So there are many different tools that we can use. I always like to joke that my job uh, relies on me shooting x-rays and lasers at things. <laughs> so pretty much that's, that's what I do. I shoot x-rays and lasers at gemstones and minerals. Um, my favorite instrument is the x-ray diffractometer, which is kind of the end-all be-all for figuring out a crystal structure. So essentially we use x-rays, you shoot it through the mineral, and the x-rays will diffract off of the atoms inside the mineral. And then we have a, an imaging plate or a detector that collects the x-rays that got bounced off of these atoms. And then we can backtrack the pathways of those uh, x-rays to recreate what the structure was. So it's a very simple geometry, really. And this is a, a method that has been around for a very long time. So mineralogy is a very, very old field. You know, we recently celebrated the 100th anniversary of the Mineralogical Society of America. So that gives you an indication of, you know, it's much older than that. Um, and so these techniques have been around for a while. And more recently, I've also gotten into Raman spectroscopy, sorry, Raman spectroscopy, which is a tool that uses lasers to probe the bonding environment of atoms within a crystal. So essentially, we shoot lasers at a crystal or a gemstone. It's non-destructive, which is great, so it doesn't hurt the gemstone. Oh, really? The lasers are non-destructive? Oh. Yeah. I mean, as long okay. as you're not turning up the laser too high. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so you always test with low power and then you slowly amp it up and make sure you're not going to hurt your specimens. Uh, what essentially we're doing is we're allowing the laser light, the energy to interact with the bonds in the crystal structure. And we know that uh, atoms will wiggle around. So you, you add an energy and the atoms will wiggle around. And then they will essentially throw back a signal. And so I'm not going to get into the details, but if you look up Raman spectroscopy, it's a fascinating, fascinating method. And essentially, I'm looking at how the atoms dance within the crystal structure. What are you trying to learn? Are you, are you trying to identify what mineral it is or some other thing? What are you trying to learn with this? So we can do many things. The first answer is yes, we can use this as a fingerprinting tool. Because every crystal has a different crystal structure and a different chemistry. So it gives, so with x-ray diffraction, for instance, you have a unique fingerprint for every mineral. And with Raman spectroscopy, it's pretty similar as well. Although because it's a newer method, uh, we still haven't figured out all of the details yet. So we don't have quite the database that we do for uh, x-ray diffraction. Beyond that, we can also use it to learn a lot of other things. So for instance, with x-ray diffraction, we can get at that unit cell structure. So we can look at the size of that structure and learn about how different elements can incorporate into the structure and change those parameters. So that's what I was doing with the corals. With Raman spectroscopy, we can even use it to look at the aragonite saturation state. 
at which the aragonite formed by looking at the width of one of the peaks that we create with our spectrum. Yeah, sure. Does so that's the only way for you really to tell the difference between because aragonite and calcite are these are amorphous, right? So you have to use x-rays or some other way to identify them. Is that correct? They're not amorphous. So they have a crystal structure, but they have they're polymorphs of each other. Right. So yes, so you would need to use x-ray diffraction or or raman to, to identify their crystallography. Okay. So what do you do if you want to I don't know if you want to study the Hope Diamond or I mean maybe you can't study that one but if you want to study like one of these expensive minerals in your collection or maybe even some of the gemstones that have this like historical background to them can you do that how do you go about doing that in in your position do you get the opportunity to study these exceptional pieces of history or oh, yeah we absolutely can I mean this the national collection you know the main reason we have this collection is for scientific research and for keeping this for future generations. So believe it or not, but scientists at the Smithsonian have studied the Hope Diamond. So they've done non-destructive tests looking at the fluorescence, luminescence, and um, and the phosphorescence of the Hope Diamond. Um, they've also, believe it or not, have done destructive tests on oh, the really? Hope Diamond. So if you look at the back of the Hope Diamond, there will be tiny, tiny, tiny little pits that were created by the top sims or the time of flight uh, secondary ion mass spectrometer. Wow, cool. So they actually did that to measure the concentration of boron in the Hope Diamond. Interesting. Wow, that must have been, there must have been a lot of paperwork to fill out doing that. (laughs) That's a difficult one. Wow. So have you studied one of these, uh, one of your, your favorite uh, gems in the collection, or are you still working up to that? Uh, we're working on something right now, but I can't tell you what we're doing. <laughs> okay. Oh, man, you got one of those jobs. It's super secretive. I love that. That's awesome. That's so cool. Gabrielle, I have a question for you then. Jesse and I actually have gone on trips, load up my truck, and off we go to someplace to, to do some collecting. Um, where has mineralogy taken you because i think one of the best advantages to going into the field of geology is it takes you places you know we have this best excuse in the world to go see cool things where has mineralogy taken you oh it has taken me everywhere (laughs) Um, (laughs) i mean besides like stanford and mit and you know all the the best (laughs) schools in america that you went to right (laughs) right I mean, it, I mean, I feel like a lot of the travel I've done in my life has been tied to mineralogy in some way. Like I mentioned earlier that when I was very little, our family vacations would be to mines in the Western U.S. So I've been to every state in the Western U.S. And of course, you know, you'll, you'll stop in all the national parks on the way. All the wildlife that I've seen has been thanks to these trips. So I'm very, very thankful to mineralogy in that respect. And in school, we went on so many field trips. I you know, spent weeks in rural Nevada mapping rocks and went to Yellowstone with, you know, two of the scientists that had been studying the geology of Yellowstone for 40 years. Um, It was incredible going with them. 
Um, and then I even went to the Bahamas during graduate school to look at corals and ooids. What a so, scam. I mean, maybe, maybe you know, now, okay, now this biomineralizations thing makes sense. You get to go to the Bahamas and go yeah. snorkel around. So this was while you were at Stanford, uh, you know, doing a lot of these field trips. Is that what you're referring to? For Stanford the- and, and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Okay. They, they were the ones that took me to the Bahamas. And of course, there, there are geological conferences that happen all around Europe, the U.S., Canada. Canada. So I've gotten to go to a lot of cities um, to present my work, which has been really exciting as well. Yeah, that's amazing. That Well, you know, Chris and I both, I think, feel this way that having excuses to go to cool places and actually study those cool places, that for me, like, it's the, the best thing to, you know, it'd be cool to go to the Bahamas and sit on the beach, but it might be cooler to go study the Bahamas a little bit like that. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we kind of wrap all of our uh, interviews up with the same question. What has been your best day as a geoscientist? So my best day was a little over two years ago when... I was told that I was being offered the job at the Smithsonian. Oh, boom. Great answer. That's the best <laughs> That's awesome. So it was actually really sweet. Um, so I've been my long-term mentor and now my colleague, Dr. Jeff Post, and uh, the, our department chair, Tim McCoy, you know, brought me into the office and they're like, so we're going to offer you the job. And it was, it was an out-of-body experience in a way for me. Like I had been wanting this for so long and I'd worked really hard. And they offered me the job. And so I immediately just like went out into the mineral hall, like with all these people milling around. And I called my dad because he'd been supporting me through so many years. And it was it was really, really exciting for, for both of us. That's awesome. That's Very cool. A great answer. And then did you just go celebrate? You've, you've made it. You've got it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. Well, Gabriella, thanks for joining us. This has been yeah. a real pleasure. We've covered a lot. And, I, you know, you've really given me some insight into biominerals and sort of, you know, you've made me rethink mineralogy a little bit because I think I, I tended to sort of put it into the old category a little bit. That's less important for our undergrads. But but you made me oh, rethink so it. Glad. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah, totally. You know, that's my goal. My goal is to like make sure people love minerals. You know, <laughs> after you talk to me, you should love minerals. <laughs> well, your enthusiasm for minerals is just, you know, it's contagious. I'm excited. I want to go look at minerals now. <laughs> Gabriella, you don't have a favorite mineral? Ooh, I mean, I like a lot of them. I'm actually quite partial to opals, partially because they defy expi- or they defy the the general uh, view of minerals, you know, they're not crystalline, so they're technically not minerals, yeah. but they do have a long range crystal order. And so I, I find them very interesting. That's cool. Opals are very, that, that's, that's a good one. I like opals too. That's yeah. cool. That's yeah. cool. Well, Gabriella, thanks for joining us on Planet Geo. This has been really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great yeah. meeting you and was, yeah, nice to meet you too. Thank I hope you, you so guys much. can visit our national collection sometime. <laughs> Oh yeah, there we go. We got, open got again. To, you're open again. Okay, we got to take her up on it. This sounds awesome. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. That's right. <laughs> Chris, man, that was a great interview. Yeah, it was. I, you know what I what I really liked more than anything else was how she highlighted and really nailed the importance of mineralogy. Yeah, you know, she really changed my opinion on a couple things about mineralogy. And I think the biomineralization stuff is, is really cool and probably has a, a really, really bright future to it. That's that's uh, Well, it's important. It's, it's totally a- important. Absolutely. Yeah, very cool stuff. So, yep. well, you can find us on all the social medias. We're at Planet Geocast, as usual. 
If you have questions, comments, feedback, send us an email, planetgeocast at gmail.com, and leave us a review. We love that stuff. really helps us uh, get the word out about how important the geosciences are. And if you're interested in coming on Planet Geo, send us an email. Hit us up. That's right. All right. Take care.